I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today we have Barbara Oakley on the podcast. Uh, Barb, if I may call you that, <laughs> is a professor of engineering at Oakland University. She's involved with multiple areas of research ranging from STEM education to engineering education to learning practices. Most recently, Professor Oakley has created and taught learning how to learn, powerful mental tools to help you master tough subjects. It's the third biggest MOOC, which is online, an online learning course, available on Coursera. And you also wrote the book, A Mind for Numbers, How to Excel at Math and Science, Even if You Funked Algebra. Barb, Professor Oakley, um, whatever I should call you, how are you doing today? <laughs> oh, please call me Barb. I'm doing just great. Actually, I've been looking forward to our podcast all day. It's Yay. so fun. Just, you know, it, it brings back to mind your wonderful book, Ungifted. And I, it's, oh. yeah, and so I just love thinking about how people think and why they do what they do. And that's, that's a big part of, I think, your own writing and your own approach to life. And so anyway, I, I, I guess for me, I share a lot of background, I, or some background, I think, with you. Um, I know you had your own learning difficulties early on. And I did too. I, I, basically flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. No. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, I did. And uh, and it's really kind of funny because I'm a professor of engineering now. So um, I, I, I think that people all too often sort of peg themselves and think that they have uh, a certain type of intelligence and that means that's the only thing they can do and that's the only, uh, you know, kind of world that they can have. And that's actually not true at all. The, there's, there's much wider horizons for most people than they ever really imagine. Yeah, and particularly in math, right? Because that seems to be a kind of topic that – that people just so large swaths of society just assume that they don't have the math gene or they aren't talented in math, therefore they can't do it. But but you really opened up my eyes a lot to that when I was reading your book. It's it's funny people. Um, part of the problem is just the last few years there there's been whole new horizons of fantastic findings in how we learn effectively. And a lot of these findings 
haven't really percolated down into classrooms. Uh, so, for example, many people don't know the following idea. It, it looks like we have two fundamentally different modes of thinking. Your brain operates in two radically different ways. One of those ways is when you're sitting there and you're focusing on something like, let's say you're trying to figure out the tip, right, for a, you know, for a waiter or waitress, or you're trying to uh, follow something that's going on in history and you're analyzing the historical trends and so forth. And when you're thinking in this way with a careful, concentrated, focused fashion, that is a completely different way of thinking than when you're sitting in a bus, looking out the window, absolutely not thinking about anything in particular, or you get in the shower and you're just taking a shower or something like that. And I call those two different modes focused mode and diffuse mode. And diffuse mode is actually a, a shorthand term for the many neural resting states. And as it turns out, when you're learning something new, you often have to alternate between these two different modes before you can actually figure out something if it's something difficult. So, Are they pretty much uh, – the, do they map on to Kahneman's System 1, System 2 or is it a little bit different? I think – I asked Daniel Kahneman once whether his – System 1 and System 2 might be related to Simon Baron Cohen's uh, system, systemizing and empathizing right, uh, right. sort of thinking. And he was so, I mean, what a wonderful thing. Here, this brilliant man is a Nobel Prize winner. He doesn't need to respond to anybody. <laughs> and he wrote He's back a nice very nice uh, email and just said, well, you know, I hadn't really thought of that. Uh, I, I don't really know. And I think it, there may be a fundamentally um, a fundamental relationship between um, this kind of focused and diffuse thinking. It between that and fast and slow thinking. I, I do. I mean, it does seem like slow thinking is really focused thinking. Yeah. But yeah. fast thinking, I think, can be a variety of different. Yeah. And, th and that's Keith Stanovich's model of uh, type 1 processes versus type 2 processes. Type 1 processes are a wide range of things from, you know, automatic um, uh, learned associations to um, emotional intuition, gut feelings, um, to evolutionary evolved instincts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So do you think the learning of, you know, to, to learn something at a really deep, meaningful level requires a smorgasbord of processes. Yes, back and forth between them. It does seem, for example, when I was talking to Bob Builder at UCLA, I asked him, can you, can you do focus mode thinking and diffuse mode thinking at the same time? And Bob was like, maybe if you're an advanced meditation monk, you might be able to do it. There's some intimations that that might be possible. So what I'm really getting at is when you say a smorgasbord, um, yes, it does. It involves both modes of thinking, but not necessarily at the same time. You want to go back and forth alternating. So when you get really stuck on a problem, it's essential that you back away because that opens your mind to these other much broader neural uh, networks that are apparent in the neural resting states. I love that. There's an article which I'll be happy to link to in the show notes by Jack and colleagues called fMRI Reveals Reciprocal Inhibition Between Social and Physical Cognitive Domains. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that paper, but it, it supports exactly what you're what you're talking about. Um, they did find that there was um, opposing reactions between the you know the default mode or what I like to call the imagination brain network, um, which is very much tied to social cognition and social reasoning, and the brain regions associated with uh, spatial visualization and mechanical and mathematical reasoning. Wow, that sounds like a fascinating paper. I can hardly read it. Wait till. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I bet I bet the listeners of this podcast can't wait to read it as well. Oh they're like, yes. They're like, oh my god, fMRI reveals reciprocal inhibition between the default mode. I bet they're very excited about this right now. Yeah. They're saying, I knew it. I just knew it. <laughs> they're like, I suspected that for years, but no one would listen to me. No one would believe me. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no so this is actually exactly um exactly so it's a really um i really like in your in your book how you um talk about the importance of both modes of thinking um for for math and science which is not typically a uh a, a set of fields where you would immediately think to yourself oh intuition's important but but some of the greatest mathematicians uh einstein <laughs> You know, it wasn't one. Actually, actually, Einstein wasn't one of the greatest mathematicians. But um, oh yeah, <laughs> it's funny because I said some of the greatest mathematicians. Even Einstein, I didn't mean to include him as a class of one of the greatest mathematicians. But in, in, including the class of some of the greatest scientific thinkers and mathematicians have talked about the importance of intuition, um, right? Well, and in that regard, a sort of tangential and related to that is the idea that analogy and metaphor are super, super important in mathematical and science. It's like literature claims uh, first rights to anything to do with metaphor and analogy and that, that that's really a literary sort of thing. You're right. You're right. It's, it's actually so deep uh, a part of math and science. And what I found, I, I, I play this one trick. I, I went to ratemyprofessors.com, which is a very popular website. If you're outside college, what you do is you go to this website and you can go and see what people say about their professors and they rate them. And I, what I did was I looked up the top 300 or so professors in uh, it throughout the world in physics, math, engineering, chemistry, all the, you know, and even psychology and you know, really interesting and, and worthwhile disciplines. And I wrote to them and said, hey, would you be willing to look at the manuscript for this book that I'm writing about how to learn in math and science? And a shocking number of them said, yes, I would. And then when I started hearing back from these people, one thing that just shocked me was how many of them these top professors in difficult disciplines, you know, like engineering and physics, chemistry, used metaphor and analogy to help them communicate really effective ideas. And what was strange was they were embarrassed to reveal it to me because, hey, that's not heavy duty mathematical you know, and, and sort of scientific approach, right? If we're using a, uh, a football as an analogy for some sort of uh, um, conveying energy or or anything like this, these kinds of fun imagery, it, it seems to make things less serious. And so people, really great teachers often use these techniques, but they don't really want to tell other people because they might be see, seen as kind of, oh, they're lightweight or whatever. And it, I have to say, it was kind of funny. When I first did the MOOC, learning how to learn. I knew that metaphor and analogy and fun imagery is really important for learning and learning well. And sure enough, when the MOOC was first starting, there's not like a whole bunch of people out there saying, hey, this MOOC is incredible, right? Like, like actually is going on now, which still just boggles me. But there were people out there saying that. So some of the first people who watched the MOOC were like, ow, this is just so condescending. She has these kind of little cutesy little zombie images. And it, it's just, it's not a serious class. And of course, now with the, what, nearly half a million people and the really a, a solid reservoir of great science behind this that's recognized by the people who are in it. And it still makes me laugh. Those first uh, few people who were kind of like, oh, no, no, this can't be serious. And I think that's why professors who do use these great techniques like metaphor and analogy and fun imagery are really shy about saying it to other people because they do get, oh, how you must be a lightweight, you know, and then that that's actually not true. No, I mean, again, I keep going. I can't stop thinking about Einstein because 
His, he, I mean, he said imagination is more important than knowledge. And, um, you know, some of these cognitive processes you're talking about right now um, relate um, to imagination. But you also talk in your book about the importance of creativity, um, you know, even going beyond, you know, just mental imagery, um, the importance of, uh, you know, synthesizing things and, um, and going beyond what um, currently exists, thinking about the future. Um, how important do you think – do you think some of the – do you think the most creative mathematicians um, – have a great imagination? I think they have a fabulous imagination. It, what's interesting about scientific and mathematical imagination is versus literary imagination, yeah, for what's example. What's the difference? Yeah. Um, with literary, there the, each form has different types of constraints. Hmm. And depending on what's going on, the more constraints you have, the uh, the more challenging creativity becomes. And so I think with math and science, you have a lot of constraints. And so it becomes more challenging to be creative. And so people who are creative in math and science are enormously creative. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, I mean, some researchers have argued, some creativity researchers, uh, like Stokes, uh, ha, have argued that that the creativity is more likely the more constraints you actually put on, on things. <laughs> I, I I like that because, yeah. and and it does. In fact, I was just speaking with, um, I was interviewing for the MOOC, and in fact, I've got to get you on to get, uh, uh, hopefully you will come oh, on. Oh, that's right. We discussed that. Didn't we discuss that a while ago? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd be honored. I, I think that would just be fantastic. And I was just interviewing a, um, I was out in Washington, D.C., and Bill Rice is the director of education for the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he was mentioning that many people in the humanities sort of think that the humanities has got a uh, a lock on creativity. Like they're the creative ones and the other ones are sort of like, and I, I'm, I'm, he didn't use these words or anything, but I've heard these kinds of thoughts from people in the humanities. And, well, if you're in the sciences or engineering, or something, you're just kind of a drone. You're just, you just got to plug the numbers into some pre-done equation. And it always makes me laugh when I hear that kind of thing, because it's, that's the equivalent of someone saying, you know, learning language, learning a new language like French oh, or, or Spanish, that's all you're doing is memorizing and plugging in uh, words, right? It, it is just so easy. It's just all you do is plug it in. And of course, that's completely untrue. If you study languages, you know how much, how, how flexible, how creative, how intimately you have to understand differences in how people perceive reality in order to learn a new language. And it's the same way, same thing if you're learning something like math or science. There's differences in how you perceive reality. And it's it's so exciting and so filled with the potential for creativity. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think people, you know, people don't understand, I think, what real like not real, but what professional mathematicians, what their life is like. I mean, a lot of us think math that we think of like the – we do think of the algebra one or the pre-algebra class where we, we're taught to plug and chug. Although maybe a good pre-algebra class goes beyond that. But I think a lot of people, unfortunately, their experiences in, um, in, 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 in middle school and high school math really is primarily formulas. But um, I think that something uh, that's very useful that you're doing is 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 is, is making people aware of um, of so many different aspects of of this stuff that's much more exciting than what we remember in middle school and high school. Um, part of what I think is fascinating about math and science, but really about any kind of learning, is we're often told, "Hey, you know." Follow your passions. Yeah. That's where it's all at. You, you know, find out what you're good at and then just get better at it. Right. And, and that's such a, I mean, to my mind, that's such a mistaken approach. 
because what happens is people um, people have things they're good at, but some things take much longer to get good at. And so if you right. just write off immediately, hey, you know, I'm only good at these things, and you don't take the time to get good at other things, and, and let's take women, for example. Well, women, we know that developmentally, yes. women and men have the same potential, underlying potential for, for knowing math and science and language and, and all sorts of things. Right. Um, but but not, there, not what is that? Does that include spatial 3D mental rotation? What's that? Does that include 3D mental rotation? Well, I'm not looking at the specific studies. I'm speaking very, very generally. Yeah, in terms of like actual achievement and right. And, yeah, and, but there there are studies that show that women verbally mm -hmm. have a little bit of an advantage early on. Right? They they develop a little bit faster verbally. It doesn't mean they're slowed mathematically. It just means they're advanced verbally. So what does this mean when they get a little older? Well, they've always been a little bit better verbally, right? Yeah. So even though they're they're just as good as guys mathematically, when they're told, hey, follow your passion, what are they going to do? Hey, I'm a little bit better verbally. That must be my passion. Yeah, it's such a good point. And so, so they end up, even though they have the capability – they think they should follow their passion off into sometimes uh, disciplines that, uh, that may be temporarily facet, uh, satisfying, but long term, they don't lead to as good a job prospects. So I always say, don't just follow your passions, broaden your passions. And, and your life is so enriched if you do that. I think that's an excellent point. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Cal Newport's book, uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You. I love Cal Newport's book. Skills, Trump Passion, and the Quest for Work You Love. Um, it seems to be in line with a lot of what you're saying. Um, let me let me like unpack some of this because I um I think a lot of I think it's you're making some excellent, excellent points. And how can we um how can we combine optimism with realism? So um not everyone is is going to be suited to be a professional mathematician proper, you know, that, that does take you know, to, to really like to be, have a, get a PhD in mathematics. I think we can honestly say, um, not all minds, um, are going to, uh, find that enjoyable, <laughs> you know? Um, so, um, I, on the one hand, I completely agree that we should, um, we shouldn't prematurely judge potential. I mean, that's the whole point of my book of gifted, right? Is that we really stop judge prejudging, and if someone does have the passion and interest for something, we should have more of a go 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 attitude, you know. Then oh, let's see what your IQ is and stuff like that. With that said, um, not everyone should be encouraged to go to math, right? Oh, I think you're you're making a good point, but I think it's important to differentiate between high level being a mathematician. Yes. And ordinary number sense. Absolutely. And m most jobs, like let's say engineering, I, and I'm not suggesting that everybody should become an engineer or that everybody should be a chemist or that ever. But what I am suggesting, however, is that the world of twin, 20, almost 15 now is is quite different yeah. than the world a hundred years ago. And there is a far greater demand for technological know-how and skills. And so it is great to have a passion for learning languages and for culture and for, for all sorts of humanities and social science sorts of things. But because the world is what it is, it's also important to add to that, to broaden with some kind of uh, number sense, uh, some kind of a technical ability 
if you're a well-educated individual, it's, it's just going to be really helpful for you to be broader than, than the typically sort of unilateral monodisciplinary person of even 25 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the development of skills, as you note, is not all grounded in innate talents. You talk a lot about active learning, um, active work, and you know something very interesting are active learning strategies and how important they are for um, problem solving and learning. Um, I mean, how can we instill the benefits and enjoyment of active learning in students in the United States um, in in such a standardized testing uh, based environment? Well, that, that's a great question. I mean, if you if you really put just started de novo, you would. Uh, I think the most important thing that it, it could possibly be in any student's life is to have great teachers. Absolutely. And any system that that doesn't promote really great teachers and doesn't enhance having great teachers is a system that's hamstringing people. So I think one of the best things we could do is really look carefully within and say, are we supporting systems that are, uh, are supporting the best teachers? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, Another thing that I think is important is we often think that, especially to get somebody in math and science, hey, you know, let's get them out there and get the excitement of it, Mm -hmm. get their hands on it, let's have fun, let's drop eggs off buildings, let's do all this kind of stuff. And then these kids who've grown up through this hit college, hit Calc 1, uh, it, it hit some of the harder, tougher, and they, it's like what one uh, university professor called the mass science death march. You know, they hit it and it's like, wait a minute, this isn't fun. You know, everything we've been led to believe until this point is it's really fun. And then we get here and it's this part isn't. And I think part of what we should also be doing um particularly in the younger grades. And I'm I'm not saying let's just force rote learning down kids' throats. But what I am saying is that having a solid understanding of fundamental facts, uh, I mean, fundamental facts and how to swiftly draw them to mind and solve problems with them is really important. And we don't really give students a lot of practice. We we give them lots of fun stuff. We give them all sorts of excitement, but we don't we don't just have them sit there and do short amounts of solid practice. A great methodology that does do this is the um, the math study program known as Kuman Mathematics. And in that program, what and I put my own daughters in that. I was like, you know, I get one after school activity that's mine. You know, as a mom, I get to force down their throat. I don't want to be a tiger mom and have them doing all sorts of things. Maybe it would be better. Now my daughters are like, you know, I wish you had made us take uh, music, you know, take Aww. a play. And I'm like, oh, you know, I was trying hard not to be a tiger mom. But one thing I did do was give him math. And they had about 20 to 30 minutes of practice a day. And now one is just wrapping up med school. And the other one is an artist. But she took calculus for fun and and aced it, you know. And so I think one thing that we don't do enough of is a little bit of practice each day with math, just as they would practice a musical instrument or a sport or something like that. I agree, but how can we motivate that practice? You talk a lot about the procrastination in your book. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that's such a common problem. So many people procrastinate, and then they say, "See, I don't have, the, I didn't have the talent for it." Now, oh yes. How can we? You know, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and I, how can we enlighten people to know that it's not because it's because you're lazy. <laughs> it's not because you're stupid. <laughs> 
Right. Well, um, a lot of it, at least. Yeah. Uh, Some people are see, stupid. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. The, about the 14th time I get asked, you what's for dinner? I'm like, okay, that's one of those stupid questions. Uh, but, uh, um, the, the thing is with um, why, why do students – I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. Can you can you rephrase that just a a, a little smidgen? Yeah, I'm just wondering how we can motivate students to want to practice math. How can we have them see the joy and love in this stuff? That's going to be tough to do if you don't have a good teacher. Yeah. Uh, and so part of Part of the whole what's going on now is we have a really, really imperfect system. Yeah. And how can we change it to improve it? Sometimes there's just no way to do that. Um, what you can do is seize uh, seize the day individually with the few people who sort of kind of for whatever reason happen to look sideways and notice that, wait a minute. There is something I can do here. And I think that's what the MOOC was really about. One thing that I did was I, I volunteered in a local inner urban school district for five years uh, to help bring them a math program. And what I found was the kids were incredible. I mean, they were just really wonderful kids. And the teachers, on the other hand, sometimes they would use the 20 minutes. They had only 20 minutes to, to have their kids study math. They would use that entire 20 minutes to hand out the materials so that by the time they were all done, they didn't have anything to fiddle with, right? Because the students didn't have time to do anything. So it was really a, a demotivator for me in that uh, I looked at what was going on, and I didn't see the problems at the student level. I saw that at the teacher level, particularly in schools for disadvantaged individuals. And that's part of why I wanted to work on the MOOC, was to try to reach to teachers themselves and also to directly to students um, to try to uh, – to show them that there are much easier ways to approach their learning. When I was, uh, see, what happened was I, I had trained myself as a linguist and I loved language, I loved culture, I loved all those kinds of things. And then when I was 26, or well, I got out of, uh, of the, uh, I graduated from high school and there was only one way at that time that I could study language and actually get paid for it, and that was to join the army. So I joined the army and I learned a language. I learned Russian, and I I ended up working as a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers up on the Bering Sea, and and all, all sorts of fun things. So that's what I was saying. Uh, I said which they used to tell me all the time, which is, you know too much, it's time to kill you. Um, but <laughs> And for the record, you said that in the, the pre-interview, so the listeners wouldn't have heard that the first time. Right, so, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, uh, but at any rate, um, so when I got out of the military, though, I I saw that really there there's just, I, it's kind of funny, but there just doesn't seem to be a big call for people who know Slavic languages and literature. Right. And so I thought, you know, I'm just, I love travel. I love adventure. I mean, I, I ended up working at the South Pole Station as a radio operator. That's where I met my husband. So I always oh. say, I know the end of the earth to meet that man. And I, I mean, I just loved having, seeing new perspectives. Yeah. and and looking at things in new ways. And then I thought, huh, you know, why can't I do that with me? I mean, if I really want a new perspective, why don't I try on for size whether I can actually learn math and science? Because there could have been nothing more alien to me than than learning something like that. And when I first started trying to do it, I made 
every mistake in the book. I would sit there and I would beat my head against the, literally against the wall. I just sit there and I get so upset. And there, if you look at my old books, there's like little holes where I take my fork and stab the book. I get so frustrated. And I didn't know things like, hey, you got to back away. And when you get stuck, you're thinking yourself into a corner um, and you're you're using a tiny little set of neural networks and you got to back away, go into resting mode, you know, diffuse states and look at things from a new perspective. And that will allow you to solve the problems. I didn't know that. And there's lots of other tricks. For example, you brought up procrastination. I mean, it's so easy to put things off. I didn't know that there was a simple trick. Just set a timer for 25 minutes and then practice focusing just for that 25 minutes. And then when it's done, relax because it's important to relax and use those neural resting states. Learning's continuing. You're not conscious of it, but it's going on in the background. I didn't know these kinds of things. And so I wanted to, with the MOOC, communicate some of these very, very simple ideas about learning. And I was so lucky. Uh, my my co-instructor in the MOOC is Dr. Terrence Sanowski. He's the Francis Crick Professor of the Salk Institute, and he's oh, wow. uh, a that fellow. Impressive. He he's like he's so he's such a wonderful human being. He's he's actually a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, and the National Institutes of Medicine. That's one of only ten living human beings who's like that. And holy cow! If you if you met him, you'd probably think he was pretty smart because he. But he's one of those people that what I love about his intelligence is. You probably know this too. There's a lot of super smart people out there. I mean, they're not super smart like Terry, but they're they're pretty smart. But they're not flexible in their thinking. Like they'll jump to conclusions. And then if you try to like say, hey, you know, there's this like obvious fact that you're missing or something like that, they do not want to hear it. So I, I defined intelligence in my dissertation, my PhD. I, I, I presented a, a dual process theory of intelligence that argues that intelligence – you're going to love this. Um, my dual process theory is that intelligence is neither controlled nor um, diffuse or autonomous thought, spontaneous thought. It is that flexibility to go between the different modes of thought depending on the, the task constraints. Um, so in my, in my view, you know, the, 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 it has no meaning to say there are super smart people that aren't flexible because for me, that flexibility is intelligence. So you're not smart if you don't have it. <laughs> so uh, there's no such thing as a super smart person who's not flexible. <laughs> I, I think it, it it does depend because I think that, for example, you can have a programmer, uh, and, and I'm I'm aware I'm stereotyping here, but a, a programmer who's really yeah. really gifted and really good at I what see they what you're do. And yet, if you ask them about to think about something that's related to, hey, you know, you just said something really rude to your yes. wife. Yes. Uh, it, it like doesn't click. You know, there, yes. so there are there's flexibility and um, and intelligence. And I, I do think that there can be types of intelligence. Types, absolutely. It's just that I don't like to hang out with those kinds of people as much. <laughs> Yeah, me neither. <laughs> well, do you know um, Danielle Bassett? No. Uh, she is. I'm afraid not. Uh, she won the MacArthur Award for her cre work in um, sort of quantifying mathematically people's ability to learn. And she's at the, I think she's at the University of Pennsylvania. Oh. Uh, and. Um, she is like the coolest. Her work just seems really cool. It's quantifying in a hard science way the kinds of things that we're talking about. And she talks about intelligence as the ability to maxim to uh, for when they're imaging the brain, how it uh, it can when you're learning something new, the brain reconfigures itself. Yes. And that people who are better learners or faster learners reconfigure themselves more swiftly. Fascinating. Yeah. She, uh, 
is in the engineering school at Penn. Just looked that up. Wow, that's just a, her work is amazing. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Um, you know, you have a background. You got you did your doctoral training in systems engineering. Um, how is systems engineer? What is systems engineering? And how did it like um, influence you in terms of how you see sort of the big picture in your own work today? Oh, what a great question. I've never been asked that question before, and I think I've been waiting for it all my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, First off, um, what is systems engineering? Let's say that you are a, a mechanical engineer, and you learn a certain set of mathematics. Um, related to how do how does the spring and the dash pod in your car how how does it bounce back around between the the mass of your car and the, the inertia of it and the uh, sort of the uh, these kinds of inertial factors and how do you quantify all of that kind of thing so um, so. Then you have electrical engineers, and electrical engineers deal with things like inductance and capacitance and resistance. And what people don't realize is there's actually a very deep relationship mathematically between capacitance and elastance. I'm probably boring people to tears. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm uh, uh, and the relationship between uh, resistance and like a dash pot in mechanical engineering. So anyway, what it all comes down to is, hey, guess what? There's these very different um, disciplines. One's dealing with little circuits and others dealing with your car and things like that. But mathematically, there's this deep essential uh, similarity between them. Yes. Well, systems engineering gets at that mathematics and kind of says, oh, hey, guess what? There's lots of of underlying relationships between seemingly different disciplines. And so what systems engineering does is try to kind of tie systems together, often mathematically, uh, to to better understand what the deep essential commonalities are. So uh, I think that that perspective has flavored all of my work makes um, complete sense and, and for me it I almost have to laugh because one thing I've noticed like I I did an interview with this uh, wonderful guy he's he's no his name is Benny Lewis and he's he goes by the nom de plume of Benny the Irish polyglot and he just speaks a lot of different languages Sounds like a good jazz musician name Oh yes. Well, he's like us. He he uh, started he's weird. out he, well, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I I wouldn't quite put it that way. At least uh, not when I was speaking with him. Oh, that's a positive it, thing in my book. <laughs> oh, well, he he is definitely a very interesting person. Interesting. And let's go with interesting. Let's go with interesting. Yeah. But what he he was an uh, an engineer and he complete washout with language just was always flunking it and couldn't pass it couldn't learn it moved to Spain took six months of Spanish lessons was the loser in the class he, he was flunking it completely and then he he sort of realized that hey you know how I'm learning language is really bad it doesn't work for me to learn it in the conventional way. And so he reconfigured his approach to learning, and now he speaks, I don't know, something like 8, 10, 12 languages, a lot of different languages, and he travels the world learning languages and having fun doing that. And so Benny is is a perfect example of, like, when I'm looking at MOOCs, I'm like, why isn't there a MOOC on general language learning? Yeah. Yeah. and I mean, not that I know of, maybe there is, but I mean, if you go to a, a you know, you'll see classes for linguistics, right? But, but not, not how to learn a language. Not for like, how do you swiftly pick up a block? What are the, what's the common kind yeah. of meta learning techniques for learning language? so helpful. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that Benny teaches. I will blur, I will, um, uh, tout his book here, which is fluent in three months. And, but that's what Benny does. 
And I, I started to notice this. It's like academics get so set in their disciplines. For example, a French teacher teaches French and you go up through the, the whole academic um, discipline and you become an, uh, get your doctorate in French or something like that, or engineering, you get your doctorate. It's always towards a pinnacle, but they're, they're, most of the time, people who are more broad ranging like Benny, who yeah. knit together different things, they're not in academia. Yeah. And yet academia needs these kinds of approaches. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there needs to be more more creativity in academia across the board. Well, um, we kind of, issue. <laughs> yeah, we kind of make sure that that doesn't happen. No, I know. We, well, we, everyone's so focused on their own little question. There is, there's not a lot of systems thinking going on in, in academia. <laughs> but how did you slip through? Well, because I never got an academic job. <laughs> <laughs> you are so smart. No, I should say that. But yes, uh... I've been on the outskirts. All of my jobs have been like you know in the periphery of you know like tenure track, but not actual tenure track. And you know, staying away from that, I think, has increased my creativity. <laughs> I think it really can because also another thing that happens is getting grants is it, it's becoming such a huge financial game. Yeah. And if you are in any of the disciplines that has the potential for bringing in money, yeah. then your intellectual resources are often really tied up grants. in yeah. writing grants, writing grants, writing grants. And you're not, that doesn't give It's like, have you ever read about I, the the old system in England of, how they used to teach mathematics at the highest levels. Oh. It was the, the, if I remember correctly, it was called the Wrangler system. And what they used to do is they had a big test. And then your score on that test sort of determined how sort of the rest of your life, right? If you were the first Wrangler, you're going to get the, your pick of the prestigious positions in mathematics uh, professorships in England. Uh, second Wrangler is down. You know, it, it goes down. But there was a lot of complaint after a while that people, that young, uh, at that time it was, it was young men, um, were devoting some of the most creative years of their life up to like age 22 or something like that. So it was like, the years when Einstein was dreaming about writing a photon yeah. were the time when these people are just sitting there preparing for this test. Oh. And so it, it actually just locked their minds in it and didn't allow them to be have the time for the creativity. And sometimes I, I wonder that it is kind of like that in, in math and science in yeah. academia now. Such a good point. Um, I, I, I think it is like that. And I think it's a shame. Um, I, I would like for the remaining uh, time we have here um, in our podcast, can we, can we get a little bit of practical uh, advice for people on how to learn you? Uh, in your book, you list four components of building mental habits. Would you mind talking about what those four are? Well, first, let's go back to what happens when you see something that you do not want to do. Yes. Like, let's say that you look and you see. Like a, math. <laughs> a, 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 right, you see your math textbook. What happens when you get your math textbook or see that math textbook? As it turns out, you actually experience pain uh, like the part of your brain that experiences pain, the same part that like you hit your thumb with a hammer. Is that the and, anterior uh, insula? Yes. Yeah. That, uh, and, and now my yeah. question is I'm really out. good at I'm good at neuroscience Jeopardy. <laughs> yes, yes, you've got those facts down right. Uh, uh, and so what happens is you there's two ways you can handle that. You can work through it. Or, and after about 20 minutes, that pain will go away. So if you work through your math after about 20 minutes, you'll start to maybe start getting into the flow of it. And it doesn't seem so bad. But the, there's another way that you can handle that much more quickly. 
And that is you simply turn your attention away from the math book, right? If you switch your focus of attention, the pain instantly disappears. So that's great, but that's also kind of like an addiction. And because because you do it once, you do it twice, right? It's like the short term, hey, I feel better. Hey, I feel better. Uh, it, it's it's no big deal if you do it a couple times, but if you keep doing it, it ends up having a terrible long term effect of your life on your life, just like any addiction, right? So so what can you do to handle this? The first thing is when you get that little cue, ah, oh, that's painful. That is a that's a cue, and so what you want to do is. For me, I'm imperfect. We're all imperfect. But I, I kind Speak of say, yourself. Uh, uh, <laughs> there we go. Uh, uh, but I enjoy the perfect people that I do meet. Uh, um, I, I, I'm perfectly imperfect. <laughs> there we go. I like that. Well, what happens is y- you, you want to kind of start keeping an eye on when you're starting to avoid things. Yes. And sort of this metacognition of, oh, hey, guess what? That's my procrastination cue. And when that happens, the best thing to do when you finally become aware of it and you also are aware this is this could create a problem for me long term if I let it keep going. What you want to do is try to stop yourself as soon as you reasonably can and get a timer and you can get any timer you want. Um, like a physical timer, or you can have a timer loaded on your computer or whatever. And you want to take this timer, you want to turn everything else off. So nothing on your cell phone, you know, you turn that so there's no sounds, no beeps on your computer, close your email programs, everything gets shut off. So no disturbances, and you set your timer for 25 minutes. And all you have to do is work as efficiently and you know diligently as, as you can focusing for 25 minutes. Now, sometimes I'll catch myself. I'll be like, wait a minute. Am I really focusing here? I can't be doing my focus on my work because I'm focusing on my thinking. So I, I and then I gently just push that thought away and I just keep trying. And, and the whole idea is just to work as efficiently as you can for that 25 minutes. When that 25 minutes is done, then what you want to do is you you just want to uh, relax for just a little bit. And learning is also taking place or cogitating, mental thinking about what you're working on is also taking place. You're not consciously aware of it, but it's also taking place during this sort of relaxed process, whether you want to go and just kind of surf the web a little bit or whatever. So, So when you get the cue, uh, and you're aware of it, you're aware of it, it's creating a problem, then set your pom- this is This is the Pomodoro technique, and it was invented by an a Italian named Francesco Cedillo in the 1980s, and it's really effective. And that's that's the, about the best way you can practically approach. And then, you know, and then sort of don't think you're going to rewire your entire life. Just start building in a few of these little Pomodoros and it makes an incredible difference in in your productivity. The only other thing is try to do, try to eat your frogs first. So like one thing in the morning, do one thing you've really been kind of putting off and only do it for 25 minutes. Frogs are quite tasty. Uh, Well, they, they tell me they taste like chicken. Uh, but everything always tastes chicken, like chicken. Not so much, but frogs are delicious. Um, so, I'm joking. Um, so, um, I, what is what is Renaissance learning? Renaissance learning is is like I want to I want to be a good Renaissance learner. It just sounds sounds sexy. It does, yeah. I, and I what I really meant by that I, I took as my riff point. Uh, Santiago Ramon Cajal, who is just one of the most incredible uh, characters in the history of science. And he was he was just this loser. I, I always love loser dropout types who were really in trouble and, and couldn't learn anything. And he was the perfect example of yeah. that. 
he ended up in jail when he was 11 years old. Wow. And, um, and it was in Spain in like the 1860s. So it was really a rotten jail full of fleas and straw and all sorts of terrible things. And he was, his father was at his wits end because here, his father worked really hard to try and drag himself up out of complete poverty. And his son is going directly back there yeah. and, um, and was hard headed, just a, he couldn't, handle his studies at all, flunked out of, got thrown out of all these schools. And then he turns out uh, around his late teens, early 20s, hey, I'm going to rewire my brain. Mm -hmm. And he did. And he became known as the father of modern neuroscience. And he won the Nobel Prize for his discoveries in neurophysiology. That's not bad. Uh, yeah. And so, so he exemplifies a Renaissance learner to me, someone who really just sort of came out of nowhere. And, and he, what he, he said was, and it, I think it's true. He said, I, I, I wasn't a genius. He says, I've worked with geniuses. I, I, it, he wrote this wonderful autobiography, but he said um, that if he, um, that, that a lot of times the problem with geniuses, in fact, is that they jump to conclusions and they're really inflexible in their thinking, just like you had said. Yeah. Uh, but he and he said, if there's anything that's good about me, it's a I'm persistent and b I'm flexible. Somebody shows me that I'm doing something wrong. Hey, I'll adjust. And that's a lot intelligence. of intelligence. That's intelligence. Yeah. There we go. But a lot of the people we work with couldn't do that. Yeah. So I guess all of that kinds of thing uh, is, is that Renaissance learning. Is that Renaissance? That's what I think is Renaissance. Gotcha. Learning. So I love you're, it. you're already there. Well, I don't know about that, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm halfway there because <laughs> I'm I'm open to it. Yes. Um, uh, you know, let's leave here today. Can you give any practical strategies to increase your memory or uh, learning or learning? Anything you want to say to our listeners who are like their head is about to explode after all this discussion of math and they're like, How, what can I do practically to increase my memory? Uh, take – Take – Two title uh, and call me in the morning? Yeah. Sorry, sorry. What do you say? Just take a tiny little thing. That's what you want to don't think about everything you want to learn or need to learn. You just take a tiny little thing and just work on that. And another thing is just the importance of visual of, of visual aspects of memory. And what this is is it or funny things it helped visual, the visual centers of your brain's a brain is enormous, right? These are really large areas of your brain. So if you can get something in there visually, you've got sort of, in some sense, more neural hooks to hang your memories on. And so, so try to make an image or try to, try to just come up with some kind of a uh, funny thing. Like if you're trying to remember a, the duck is, Pato in in Spanish. Well, hey, Pato, how am I going to remember that? It doesn't even sound like duck. But the duck sits in a Pato of water and it paddles around. So then you can kind of think duck. What is a duck? Oh yeah, yeah, it's in a Pato. That's it. And at first, when you do this, you make these funny little analogies to help you remember. It, it's really time consuming and slow. But the more you practice, the faster you get at it. But you'll find that once you make a, a something vivid like this, it actually sticks really well in your memory. Mm -hmm. And you can use it not just for language learning, but if you're trying to learn uh, pharmaceutical names uh, as, a, as a physician, you can use it for all sorts of different things. But always try to – and the stupider uh, – and actually, the more risque, whatever you come up with, the easier it is for you to remember. So that's one quick, slick trick to help your memory. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Professor Barb Oakley, for being on my podcast today and imparting uh, your knowledge for all of us. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com.
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We're the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 